the uh, passage that I'm going to be looking at uh, tonight is uh, chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 4 of First Thessalonians. And it's an interesting passage because it's, um, f- for me, it was, a, it was a struggle to find, um, I think, what, what uh, I don't know, it, it was just a very personal thing for me um, this week, and so I really have struggled with it. But I want to share with you first the passage and then some things I think that God is saying to me and hopefully to you as well. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left to ourselves, by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you, and that our labors might have been in vain." It's an interesting passage, and as I read it, I I see a lot of uh, this passage is about mistrust, mistrust of people. Mistrust is always a killer of relationship. Some of the people in the church in Thessalonica believe that Paul has abandoned them, that he's not there for them anymore, that he didn't come back, that he doesn't care about them, that he doesn't think about them. Um, they determined that he had some responsibilities toward them and that he had abandoned that. He wasn't coming through for him. Most of us struggle with mistrust. We either believe that people, um, fellow believers, must do certain things to earn our trust, or that any and all past failures make other believers uh, untrustworthy. The first thing I want to talk about when I talk about trust is that trust issues are real for us because trust issues mean that we care. We care about each other. Caring is a good thing. The Thessalonians, uh, the people in Thessalonica, they, they cared about Paul. They cared about him. He had led them to faith. He had led them to Christ. They trusted him. Um, he was precious to them. He mattered to them. He had walked them into the faith, and now he was gone, and they felt abandoned by him.
He felt betrayed. Let down. And see, the thing is, is that only the people that you care about, only the people that you trust, (laughs) can get close enough to you to hurt you. No one who you mistrust, no one whose intentions you doubt, will ever get close enough to you to hurt you. If a stranger walks up to me carrying a gun, I get nervous. I hide. (laughs) I yell for Scott, the cop, the village cop. You know, I call 911. This is scary stuff. I I get really scared. I don't let them come close. I run. I hide. But if John Pran walks up to me with a gun, I go, oh, he must have been to another gun show. I wonder what he's going to show me this time out of his gun collection, right? Like, because he's, it's different. I trust him. I've known him. Now, he could hurt me, probably. But he wouldn't because, well, he better not, um, because I'd cry and I wouldn't buy breakfast next time. Um, so there's this trust issue, right? But, but I trust John, so only he could hurt me. The stranger's not going to hurt me because I'm going to run and I'm going to hide and I'm going to get away. We mistrust. And often we mistrust each other and it's because we have certain qualities about us, certain things that happen to us, certain ways of being, certain ways of thinking. Often we go off with incomplete information. We stop trusting someone, we stop caring about someone, or th- we think someone thinks badly of us or will hurt us because we don't have full information, complete information. We build a case against someone in our head based on not full information, but partial information. Years ago, I was president of a school board in Phoenix and a Christian school, and they and I had ordered an audit, and as part of that audit, we had discovered that this dearly beloved bookkeeper who had been a bookkeeper there for years had been stealing huge amounts of money each year. And so I had to deal with that, and to deal with that in private, and to deal that with that in such a way that nobody knew. Now, the reason I can tell you about him and about it is because he gave me permission to tell the story over and over again, and I often do, because it's a beautiful story of God's grace. But he was, he was a thief, and I had to tell him that he could no longer be in the office and he was no longer to handle the bookkeeping. Well, at that time, I had my own accounting business and I had my own, I was, I was, I was a, uh, a consultant, a business consultant, and I specialized in setting up accounting systems and doing accounting for people. And so a bunch of the teachers were very upset and a bunch of the administrators in the school were very upset because they didn't know what was going on because they weren't part of the board and they didn't know and they hadn't seen the audit reports. And they didn't know. And they thought and they assumed that I was just trying to get to take over the school's accounting business. And it was painful. It was painful because they judged me harshly (laughs) and they yelled at me. 
and I couldn't give them information. And I thought, and said, if you, you don't have full information. You think you do, but you don't. So often, lack of trust comes because we don't have full information. Second is assumptions. We make assumptions about people's motives. We make assumptions about people's character. We assume things about people that are not necessarily in evidence. We think that's true, but it doesn't have to be that way. When one of my good friends went through a horrific divorce, there was one of the elders of the church who wanted to come and talk to him and just pray with him and be kind to him. And, and my buddy said, no, no way. <laughs> he just wants to get information. He just wants to gossip about me. He just wants to let other people know. He doesn't really care about me. So I said, wow, you're assuming a lot <laughs> about someone who's expressed concern. I said, never, ever assume motive. Several years later, I was going through a tough time, and I was bragging on somebody who I mistrusted, and my buddy said to me, weren't you the guy who said never assume motive? <laughs> but we do that, right? We assume motives. We assume that the other person really thinks this, or really does this, or really wants that, even when we don't know. And in that, we don't often, and this is the third one, is we don't give the benefit of the doubt. Presented with two options, we choose the one that places the other person in a bad light. When I was in grade school, I got bloody noses a lot. Not because I got in fights, just because I got bloody noses. I don't know, because I'm tall, I guess. Uh, the blood took a long time to rush up there, and once it got up there, I didn't know what to do, so it came out my nose. Um, but, but, but my friend Paul, he, he got in a fight one day, and he got punched in the nose, and so he's in the boys' bathroom, and he's bleeding, and he's sitting over the sink, and he's bleeding, and I go in there, and I think, I know how to help him fix a bloody nose. I've done this a lot. So I'm telling him to put his head back and, you know, hold the, let the blood drain back. And, you know, I, anyway, I, I was an expert in bloody noses and I was just trying to help. And the principal comes busting in and says, okay, who was fighting? And Paul says, I was. And then he said, okay, fine. And come to the office with me. You too, Hugan. And I go, but, 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 but I wasn't fighting. And he goes, yeah, right. But I wasn't. He didn't give me the benefit of the doubt. He had no evidence, but he believed that I would be involved. And even when Paul tried to convince him I wasn't involved, oh well. I got punished. I got punished for something I didn't do because they assumed and did not give me the benefit of the doubt. Another thing that gets in the way is our demands. We believe that people need to respond to us according to our expectations. We think things like, if you were really a friend of mine, you would loan me the money when I need it. 
That's what friends do. We have a certain demand of how life has to be. And in our world, if a friend asks for money, then you have to give it to them. It's a demand. And we expect that everybody would think that way. That that's just true for everyone. Even when it's not. And then our history gets in the way. Our history together gets in the way. We often have been failed by this person before. Therefore, we assume that we'll be failed again by this person. Our history so often gets in the way. We use words like always. My wife always has done this. <laughs> She's not going to do anything different today. She's always been like that. And of course, when we do that, we deny the means of grace. We deny that people can ever change. And we would hate that if someone does that to us. You can't possibly change. You're always going to be the way you've always been. But yet we turn and do that to each other. The person failed me, so I'm never going to give him another chance. Then another thing that gets in our way is our fears. What if I truly am alone? What if, I, what if I'm in this place and nobody cares? What happens if no one's thinking about me? What happens if I don't matter? Our fears, our doubts, those are all true. Some of the Thessalonians have apparently engaged in this kind of mistrust. Paul doesn't care about us. He's not the person we hoped he would be. He doesn't come through for us. We have our doubts, we have demands, we have expectations of him. We've assumed things. We know what's right. If he really cared about us, he'd be here. And Paul responds to them. Paul responds by declaring, first of all, his love for them. If you've noticed in the first chapter or two chapters now of of First Thessalonians, we we see Paul use family metaphors a lot. He talks about father and mother, and and he talks about family, and and now he and now he appeals to the the truth that he feels like an orphan. He describes himself as an orphan. He talks about his deep longing to be with them, to be close to them. He feels orphaned, separated. Today I feel a lot like an orphan, (laughs) because I am one. 
a 64-year-old orphan, but an orphan nonetheless. My dad and mom aren't around anymore. Mom died in November, and it's hard. My mom and I had this crazy routine, and every Mother's Day, of course, my siblings would all call her, and I would try to call her too. And then, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, one, one, one Mother's Day, I tried to call her, and, um, and she, I couldn't get through. The phone was busy, and, and then I had to church and, you know, stuff. Anyway, so I never got through. So on Monday, I called her and said, Happy Mother's Day, and she said, Oh, hey, good, my slacker son loves me. She says, because um, your sisters and your brother all called yesterday. And I said, yeah, Mom, I'm I'm the slacker son. And am I still in the will? And she said, well, okay, I guess. And And we had this great time talking on Monday. So that was a lot of fun. And then the next year, I waited till Monday to call her. And so every Monday after Mother's Day, I call my mom and chat away about our lives and then ask if I'm still in the will. But now we've executed the will and I was in it. (laughs) But I won't get to talk to her tomorrow. And that's hard. That feeling, that feeling of not having that connection, that feeling of distance, that feeling of separation, a separation that can't be just fixed with words. It can't just be fixed with a different way of thinking. It can't be fixed. It's just real, and it's painful. Some of you experience that in, uh, on this day, all kinds of pain, of separation and hurt. I'm sorry, I'm sad. It's true, it's real. We live in a broken world. And Paul has this deep feeling for the Thessalonians, and he feels orphaned from them, separated in that kind of way. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And it's not repairable or fixable. There's a deep loneliness and longing in me to have my father and my mother nearby. And proximity matters, right? Paul longs to be with them, to be in their presence. But circumstances are such that it didn't couldn't and wouldn't happen. He wants to be with them, but he recognizes something that is crucial for us to recognize. He recognizes Satan's interference. Satan has screwed it all up. He's messed it all up. He's made it hard. He's made it impossible. Never underestimate the power of Satan to destroy that which is good here on this earth. Don't underestimate his desire to kill and destroy. He loves nothing better than disruption, mayhem. He loves to divide, to separate, to conquer. He loves to sow doubt and, and mistrust. He loves to drive wedges between us. He wants those people in Thessalonica to believe that Paul truly has abandoned them, that he has left them, that he's gone on to other more important things, that they don't matter. 
He'd love it if they'd believe that. He wants to turn them away from the rich faith that Paul had taught them. At the beginning of this book, we talked about Paul bragging about their great faith. And Satan can't stand that. He doesn't want them to have faith. He wants them to go back to their pagan ways. To turn away from the good thing that they found in Christ. And he tempts us. And he puts up roadblocks. And he messes with us. We're not innocent in all that, of course. We're not just victims. We hear Satan's temptations, and sometimes they sound pretty reasonable. The tempter tempts us with a lot of things, with things that will pull us away from intimacy with God, that will pull us away from intimacy with each other. One of the things that he uses for us, I think often we kind of think like Satan is, like these roadblocks are more big event things than they really are. Often he just uses things like apathy. He wants you to just not care. Doesn't matter. I got other things to do. I got to work. Got to pay my bills. Don't have time for other people. Don't have time for God. Oh yeah, Sunday night I'll go. It's a temptation to just drift. Drift into apathy. Drift into not caring. Another thing that Satan often uses is the thing that he uses here. He uses great suffering. I mentioned before that when you suffer, you have a decision to make. You have to make a decision. You have to decide, do I trust that God is good now, or do I not trust God? And it's a crucial decision. And Satan loves to put you in those places where you have to make that decision. And his hope and his desire and his greatest longing is that in your suffering you will renounce God, say he doesn't matter, Screw this, I'm done. Suffering is always an invitation to decide, is God good? So Satan will put suffering in your path. Great pain, great struggle. Some of you, the other night when we were praying for many of you um, at our leadership meeting, I, I was just so overwhelmed with, with what you face. It's horrible stuff, hard stuff, painful stuff. And in your suffering, Satan is right there, whispering, how could a loving God let this happen to you? You think he really cares about you? Do you think you really matter? Satan tells believable lies. 
That's another way in which he calls us away. He, he comes up with believable lies. So many things that Satan tells us sound so good and so right. They're always about how we're missing out. That's the original one with Eve, right? You're missing out. God's holding out on you. When he has Jesus and he's tempting and testing Jesus, he he says, God's holding out on you. He doesn't really mean that. He doesn't really say that. And the lie that he comes often, like with Jesus, he actually uses Scripture, which is amazing. Just twists it a little. Just a little. So it becomes sort of a believable lie. He uses false beliefs from false teachers. He sends people among us who say, no, that's not the way it really is, and they teach us, and they're good teachers. And they teach us really bad things. And we have to be aware of them. Push them away. Another one of the tempter's temptations is the lure of this world, the things that this world offers. you renounce God, if you turn away, I'll give you this. Wealth, position, status, power, strength, more hours in your day, whatever. The things that this world offers are often attractive to us. We want them. We don't want to wait for them. I've said it a million times, and I'll say it, I hope, till I die. Satan offers instant gratification. And then you pay the bill for the rest of your life. Jesus never offers you instant gratification. (laughs) Never. In my 64 years, he's never said, here, here's this fantastic thing, and now all your problems are over. No. He offers you something good and asks you to trust him and take hold of it. And then, over the long period of your life, you begin to see the joy of the goodness of what he offered you. My buddy who was used to be my boss over at Teen Challenge used to say, I got that first cocaine hit, and it was the most amazing feeling I've ever had. And then I spent the next 20 years chasing it and never, ever found it. And it took more and more to give me less and less. And then I was on the streets, and then I was eating out of dumpsters, and then my life was over. And then Jesus comes and he says, and he offers me life. And I'm going, (laughs) I don't want any more of this. He goes, no, real life. And he gives it to me. And inch by inch, day by day, 
he slowly pours it out on me till 20 years later I can say wow I can look back on the beauty of what he's offered that's how Satan works and that's how Jesus works the lure of this world is a fake false promise <clears throat> the Satan Satan tempts us the mistrust is real mistrust matters People, here's the truth, people will let us down. So many of us look to other people. One of the reasons we mistrust people is because they're not trustworthy. Because they really do let us down. They hurt us. They cause us pain. They don't give us what we long for. So often we want them to be Jesus to us, and instead they're not. We want them to do the right thing. They don't. They hurt us. They cause us pain. People are not trustworthy. And we say, well, they should be, and you should be, and if you really loved me, you would, and if you did this, you would. But we let each other down. It's true that in the end, we are not each other's saviors. And if you're looking to each other to be your savior, to someone other than Jesus to be your savior, you're going to be deeply disappointed. I thought my wife would save me. I thought she would be the one who would care about me and know me deeply and never hurt me or cause me any pain. She's an amazing wife, but she's not trustworthy. <laughs> she's hurt me. She's caused me pain. When I needed her the most, there were times when I thought I needed her the most, and, and she didn't come through for me in the way that I hoped she would. And here's the dirty little secret. I don't come through for her either. I'm a big disappointment to her too. I'm not trustworthy. I don't do the things that she needs, wants, desires. <clears throat> We're not each other's saviors. That's not an excuse for not offering good things to each other. It's not an excuse for not, it's not an excuse so that you can be, um, lack trustworthiness. I'm not telling you you can get away with it. You should be trustworthy. You should aspire to it, and you should ask Jesus to help you be it. The truth is, Jesus is with the Thessalonians in the midst of their suffering and struggle. He's there. They don't need Paul to come. They don't need Timothy. They don't need anyone else. Beautiful that Paul sends Timothy to help out, that he cares about them, that he's praying for them, that he's longing to be with them, that circumstances are such that he can't be. But they don't need Paul. They need Jesus. And he's there. Jesus is also with Paul in the midst of his longing, and as he sends his good friend Timothy to go minister, he's, Paul's not abandoned, because he has Jesus there with him. 
He's with Paul in the midst of his loneliness. He's with the Thessalonians in the midst of their suffering. Paul is powerless to fix the problems that have kept him from Thessalonica. And the Thessalonians are powerless to solve the suffering of the circumstances that they find themselves in that keep him far away. Only Jesus can break down those barriers. Only Jesus can change those things. Only Jesus can take Satan's roadblocks and destroy them. So the invitation is to turn to Jesus in no other place. In no other place can you put your trust than in him. Psalm 146, parts of Psalm 146 read this way. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Psalm 68, verse 6 says that God places the lonely in families. (laughs) He's put us together as a family. He's put us together and called us to trust each other and to care for each other and be trustworthy, to honor each other and respect each other and love each other. To be quick to say, I'm sorry, I wasn't trustworthy. To want to be better than we often are. To desire to offer ourselves to each other. When Paul sent Timothy, he sent him to do two things, the passage says, to strengthen their faith and to encourage them. To strengthen their faith. So my challenge to you is have faith. Have confidence in the goodness of God. Hang on despite whatever you're going through, despite whatever this day means to you, however hard it is, wherever you are, hold on. Make your faith strong and take courage. God never abandons those he loves. He didn't abandon the Thessalonians. He doesn't abandon Paul. He doesn't abandon. Not at all.
He never leaves, never forsakes, never walks away. He's never not trustworthy. He's always the one we can trust. Let's pray. Jesus, you're trustworthy. Help us to put our trust in you. Help us to turn to you when all around us people fail us, people hurt us, 